Scuba Obsessed, episode 600. Now you got me thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed weekly podcast where we cover all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Obsessed episode 266 recorded live December 10th, 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the unseasonably warm side of the southwest corner of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing, Mac? I'm doing very well and enjoying the warm outdoor weather. At least the air temperature is good. Yeah, well, I think we had uh, 55 today. Something of that nature. It was great. A little breezy, though, if you're wet. This means that when it really gets cold like it should be, we're not going to be able to handle this. It's going to be a pain in the butt, yes. <laughs> 34 degrees, we'll think it's the end of the world. Well, let's, I apologize again for the sound quality this week. Hopefully this is the last week I've got the new system is all built and I just ran out of time to get it all tweaked today. It seemed like as I get in the last bit of the software configured, it was fighting me. So we either could record at about midnight or uh, we can go ahead and get this done. Hopefully the system as an idling isn't too loud. It's got about six fans in that, that new system. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right on into scuba in the news. First article we have up is a little bit about, see, I don't know if this is my normal or contamination uh, in major farming regions of the western U.S. Out of Fresno, California, they're noticing that there is uranium in the water. The levels are now considered unsafe by federal and state standards. The law requires a trailer park's owner to post warnings. Uh, he says the warnings are awkwardly worded in English, a language that few of the park's Spanish-speaking families can read. It says, you could drink the water, but if you drink the water over a period of time, you can get cancer. But it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. And they really don't explain it. Uh, the uranium, which is what we use in uh, fission, nuclear plants and some atomic bombs, is showing up in the water systems in the farming region of the U.S., naturally occurring, but an unexpected byproduct of <clears throat> irrigation of drought and overpumping a natural underwater water reserve. Associated Press investigating California's central farm valleys, along with the U.S. Central Plains, among the areas most affected, found authorities are doing little to inform the public at large of the growing risk. That includes that one out of four families on private wells in the farm valley are uh, drinking dangerous amounts of, radi- of uh, uranium. Researchers determined this uh, this year and last, government authorities say long-term exposure to uranium can damage kidneys, raise cancer risks. Scientists say it can have other harmful effects. Uh, in the area of farmland, about 250 miles long, encompassing major cities, up to one in 10 public water systems have raw drinking water with uranium levels. Nearly 2 million people in California's Central Valley and the U.S. Midwest live within a half mile of groundwater containing uranium that is over the safety standards. University of Nebraska researchers said the study published in September, everything from state aid to tiny schools, the hundreds of tainted public wells. 
Uh, they're more regulated than private wells under safe drinking water laws. That includes water wells from the Westport Elementary School, where 450 children from rural families in the Central California farm hub of Modesto, a Westport playground, school children <clears throat> take a break from tetherball to sip from fountains marked in Spanish and English post uh, play, placards, safe to drink. The school, which draws its own well for drinking fountain sinks and cafeterias, about uh, 10 water systems of farm region that have installed uranium removal facilities in recent years. They said the price of the, of the filtration runs from 65000 for the small system to millions of dollars. If you were to look inside the school system, you'll see a filter with uh, tubes, dials, and canisters resembling scuba tanks. And they said that the system is capable of removing a pound of uranium from the school's well each year. When it comes time to remove it, it's handled just like any other nuclear material taken away by workers in masks, gloves, and other protective gear. This is uh, according to Ron Dollar, a vice president of water remediation technology in the Colorado-based firm. They take the material and it's processed to nuclear fuel for power plants. Then the article goes on. This one, uh, I, I didn't realize that there was that much uranium <clears throat> in drinking water. Well, item number one is I, I was curious about that, so I looked it up. According to the EPA, there's all already identified and they're working on 240 unregulated water sources that have the same issue in addition to arsenic. And they're saying a lot of it is based on proximity to abandoned uranium mines. Uh, so it's not from nuclear waste or nuclear pollution per se. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. So 29 of the sample sources exceeded drinking water standards for radionuclides, including uranium. And the unfortunate part is they're, if you're not directly involved, you don't have a clue. You can't smell it. You can't taste and, it. Right. And they're saying a lot of this is coming from deep wells, especially in the western states where they're having a water shortage. So they're really having to go down deep, and they're finding all sorts of pollutants they hadn't anticipated. Now, uranium's fairly heavy element, isn't it? Yes. That's my understanding. Same as arsenic, because you'll find arsenic, you'll find um, cadmium, lead, you're going to find those at the bottom of our, of our river in St. Joe, for example. Mm -hmm. So when they dredge that out, they've got to be careful where they get rid of it because it already has pollutants. And like I say, unlike radioactivity, which will diminish over time, you know, lead does not decay. No. Cadmium, you know, arsenic, it's like people sometimes get their perspectives a little screwed up. Mm -hmm. But then I went after talking about this, I thought, well, gee, how, how widespread is this? So I went to GAO, which is Government Accountability Office, and uh, just the item on the Navajo reservation aspect is quite extensive. We're talking 30% of the population or the Indian population in that area uh, have issues based on this water problem. So we not only took their land, they were poisoning them. <laughs> so they, they said that a lot of this is the outcome of uh, mining for uranium. Then. And deep wells and low water levels. And if things do migrate down heavy, that they're not really being more specific and they're not telling you all the different places. Like if they already know there's 269 or whatever it was, let me see where that was, what did they say? 240 samples of unregulated and they know it. I'd like to know what states those are in. And if you're just talking about the West, what about the East? And I'm curious about the fracking aspect. How is that coming into play? So like I said, uh, you want to invest in water? You want to invest in filters for water yep. because 50 years from now, that's going to be gold. Certainly. It sounds funny, but it is. Well, you have to have water to drink. You don't don't make it long without no. water. And you're going to wind up seeing, if nothing else, you're going to see nuclear plants that use for desalination 
yeah. because they're talking vast quantities of water. You know, the only one they actually had, which is now shut down, was in the Soviet Union. Oh, for desalination? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting. Of course, I won't have to worry about it, but uh, my kids will, and your nieces and nephews down the road will definitely have to worry about this. Yeah. Among other problems that we as Americans have not a freaking clue of, because we're most interested in other little items. Yeah. Like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what foot can go in the mouth when and where? Uh, well, we, I won't go there, but it's going to be an interesting yeah. upcoming year. Yes, yeah, certainly. Party. I can see a third party here. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of, uh, this whole thing, it's almost like a sport. <laughs> or something. Uh, or something. Well, yeah, so, so kind of back on the uranium, it just makes me think, I don't, if you have the water tested, you probably have to have a specific test to even detect uranium. Since I don't know how they do it, you know, when you test for water, what are you looking for, even local? I'm not really sure. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, a general, you know, test they do. It, it sounds like something I need to research. I'm gonna oh, that's right. You're on a well system, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on a well. I'm, my, my well's 210 feet down. How much? 210 feet. Whoa. The water table right in my neighborhood's 110. Oh, well, the water table's 30 feet. You can get water. Uh, you can hand drive a well and get water at 30 feet. But to have good, considered to be quality drinking water, you in this particular area where I'm at, you everybody's between 190 and 260 feet is where they're putting wells. Looking, what they look at, if you have your water tested, has your water recently changed? If any of the blow conditions exist, you need to have your water tested. Has the area of your well that your well is located in been flooded recently? Do you suspect nearby oil or gas well drilling or mining has contaminated your groundwater, fracking? Has your drinking water suddenly become cloudy or taste changed? Have you heard of uh, news reports about pharmaceuticals being found in municipal water supplies? Uh, common contaminants found in water samples is fecal, uh, fecal, nitrates, volatile, organic compounds, and heavy metals. Yeah, out where I'm at, it's usually the uh, uh, the nitrites from the farming activity that usually comes in, which is another reason why it's down at 210 feet. Yeah. Because we're trying to get it from the deep, deep aquifer as opposed to just taking, you know, groundwater that's settling. I, I just looked uh, at the uh, U.S. Geological Survey again. I said areas where wells are susceptible to radioactivity, they say trace elements and groundwater used for drinking of a concern because of potential adverse health effects. Uh, trace elements also include aluminum, uh, arsenic, barium, beryllium, boron, cadmium, chrome, cobalt, copper, iron, lead, which we know about those, mm-hmm. lithium, magnesium, manganese, molybdenum, nickel, selenium, silver, thallium, thallium uranium, uh, zinc, radon, and a bunch of other stuff. It's like, damn. There's a lot that can be in water. Yeah. And since you need it to live on, uh, it would be advisable to have your water checked. The one thing we're fortunate here being in the Great Lakes, because we can get a lot of water from Lake Michigan. And, you know, the downside is that anything you put in the river ends up in the lake. Yeah. Well, this next one is from the Courthouse News. It's a little bit of information about a lawsuit that's going on. And uh, this is from Honolulu, and they're saying that a signed liability waiver doesn't necessarily bar someone from suing negligence. Uh, and this goes from a uh, Maui snorkeling ex- excursion. Uh, Mark Stricker, 50, of Austin, Texas, died in 2014 when he was unable to return to the tour boat owner and Captain Charlie Neal's snorkel and dive boat during a fast-moving storm over the location in Maloloki Lokini Crater. Stricker was snorkeling with his wife 
who is the plaintiff, Mary Stricker, and their two minor children, six scuba divers, six snorkelers, were in the water for about 30 minutes when a freak storm rolled in, and it hit like a wall. 40 to 60 feet winds, rains, 8 to 12 foot breaking waves. Uh, this is according to Neil. Um, let's see, is that, that must, oh, that's Neil from the snorkeling service he put in Facebook. So everyone wants what happened yesterday. I owe an explanation, he wrote. Mary Stricker filed a maritime wrongful death suit claiming negligence and gross negligence against Neil uh, Monolokini divers, Nilco International doing business as Scuba Shack, and Neil's vessel Double Scoop. Uh, but the defendant moved for, for uh, summary judgment, arguing that Eccles' claim is barred by a waiver that Mark Strickert signed before embarking on a tour. The gross negligent claim has no legs because Mary Strickert didn't offer evidence of defendant's culpability in the accident. Uh, last month, U.S. District Judge Derek Watson in the District of Hawaii declined to dismiss the suit, finding uh, tribal issues, in fact, in both Mary Strickler's claim. Triable, not tribal, I said tribal. Uh, after finding admirably jurisdiction applied the case, Watson agreed to release Mark Strickland signed a professional association of diving instructors discovered scuba divers participant statement applied to scuba diving only, not the snorkeling uh, Mark Strickland was doing at the time of the storm. Defendant's position hour raised the question whether snorkeling is similar enough to scuba diving and skin diving to be encompassed by the release agreement. The court concludes that this is a question of fact, uh, Watson wrote. The judge also noted that Mark Strickert's had not initiated, initialed the key section of the release, which read, it is my intention by this instrument to exempt release and hold harmless scuba check and all related entities as defined above from liability waiver whatsoever personal injury property damage and wrongful death caused by negligence. That omission and the ambiguities in the release prevented dismissal at the stage of the case, Watson said. As a gross negligence claim, Watson found the triable issue as to whether Neil's con- conduct during this storm amounted to gross negligence warrant continuing the proceeding. Allegations that Mr. Neal was aware that Mr. Strickert was visibly distressed in the open ocean and that despite plaintiff's repeated pleas to Mr. Neal to assist her husband, Mr. Neal, for at least several minutes, stood and did nothing to assist Mr. Strickert, suggesting an indifference to the present legal duty and utter forgetfulness of legal obligations as far as the other persons may be affected. And it goes on for quite a little bit. So what it doesn't tell me is, one, did he have a vest on if he's snorkeling? No, he didn't say. And to me, that would be a key element to me in, in that aspect. Because if you've got a good vest and you've got snorkeling, I don't know why he died. Is it because he died from drowning or did he hit the rocks like they said some of the other people were close to hitting? He did not make it to the rocks or back to the vessel despite efforts of crew members. And Have you ever been in a freak storm like that that comes up out of nowhere? Yes, I've been in, I was on a sailboat with my dad, and we were on the other side of the state in uh, uh, Saginaw Bay, uh, Huron there, and it was, you know, a beautiful day, everybody's having a good time, and within five minutes, you know, the water was green and everything was rolling, and it was all you could do to get back in the shore. I was having a blast, but uh, I can remember looking back at my dad, and, you know, you could just see the stress on his face from trying to get in. We, we did a dive uh, off of Michigan City towards Chicago, and we're, I can't remember if we were doing the, the barge out there or not, which wreck it was, but when we just came up at the termination of our dive, everybody on the boat was like, get, you know, signaling, come back, come back now. We had barely got on that boat when it, you were in a gale that quick, and we actually got hit by lightning on the way back in, 
And the people on Shark, since they couldn't hear our radio or any of that, they thought we'd sunk. But oh, wow. for 15 minutes, you're talking one hell of a storm. You know how you have the uh, a really heavy-duty mahogany mast in the back of your boat, some of them, with a flag on it? Yeah. The water, and the, it was so rough, it broke that, that mast ahead. And we're only talking, you know, two-foot piece of, of mahogany. Yes. And it, it was, you know, everybody kept their suits on and their BCs, <laughs> yes. got rid of the weight. And it's like, hey, this is quite interesting. I'm not going to drown. And then 10 minutes later, when we came in, it's like a nice sunny day as we steamed back into to the port. And that's, that's what it seems like, that, that same incident that I was in. Uh, it was within a couple hours and it had all cleared up. But when it happens like that, and that sounds like what situation they were in. Uh, yeah. But, and I'm just thinking back, if I had not made it to the boat within that short period of time, that would have been quite interesting. Well, see, I've always wondered what the initialing does. I mean, if you sign a contract, isn't the contract for the whole thing? Well, it's like skydiving. If you if you jump into some you know weird flying stuff, sailplane, you sign a waiver. It's like if it's you can't sign the rights away of somebody else to sue, even though it says that in a lot of the forms. I hereby say nobody in my family can be blah blah blah. Well, you can't sign for somebody else. No, you can't. <clears throat> but what you've got to do then is prove gross negligence. And if you weren't there, you probably don't have a freaking clue. Yeah, now, in this case, she was there. Correct. Now, the interesting thing is that now she's suing on her behalf and her two children, but I'm assuming that as a snorkeler, she also signed the waiver. So maybe she can't sue for herself, but she can sue for the kids? Or does that I mean, yeah, it, it, I, I'm sure that somebody's going to come up with a new and improved waiver after this. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, we, we've looked at some of the legal aspects when people sue because of an injury. Mm-hmm. Like the one last week that took how many years to go through? You saw that cascade of an error, an error, an error, bad judgment? Yes. None by themselves would have killed her, but collectively it showed a very poor management of safety management. And that seems to, to be what they're trying to imply here. Yeah. Well, I, I think the key item in has to be wanton or willful misconduct. And her comment was she kept saying, go help him, go help him, and he didn't. But if he's got divers in the water, he can't move the boat. Well, also, he has responsibility to everybody. Yes. So she, you know, she's pushing for them to go and immediately help her husband, but he can't risk the lives of everybody else to go do the one task. Yeah. So it, it's unfortunate, and it'll be interesting if we get, you know, to see the results of it. Yeah. If we if we can find out, I'll, we'll keep an eye out. Hopefully, we'll get some sort of information because this is the beginning stages. This is where they're they're trying to determine, you know, can it go to court? Which it looks like they've said it that it can and what's admissible. Yeah. So I would expect, uh, you know, that within the next three to six months should have an outcome. True. I always like to look at it if I were on a jury and having signed waivers before. Mm-hmm. To me, I think like jumping or skydiving or snorkeling or scuba diving, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, you they tell you the risk. It's written in there, but you don't think it's going to happen to you. Yeah, nobody does. And again, I, I can see gross negligence. Absolutely, waiver shouldn't handle it, but proving that gross negligence. Well, to me, the point of the waiver is that if it's something that just happened and it's not directly in the control of the operator, you know, it's not something that he should be responsible for, then that's what the waiver is supposed to do. If you're negligent and you're just a bad guy and did everything wrong, and then that waiver shouldn't protect you. Right. But well, go ahead. I'm so bad. I was going to say in this case. If I, I think if I was the defendant, I would say, hey, here's the point of the waiver, and this is a storm's fault. 
you know, we, you know, we followed our normal procedure. We went and looked for bad weather. Uh, you know, these things happen, and that is the cause of it. It's not negligence. It's not that we didn't do something. And we, doing our duty and having proper staff, we tried to get everybody in. And for whatever case, uh, he wasn't. So that, to me, almost sounds like the reason why you do a waiver. I have seen some places when you do a waiver, they video you signing it so they can prove you were not under the influence and you were not drunk when you did it. Because they'll say, well, he, you shouldn't have let him do it because he was drunk or he was under the influence of drugs. Or I, I had a class, for example, one time, and it looked like the guy just woke up. Oh. It was a bachelor party and everybody decided to go. Uh-huh. So he's there, a hell of a hangover. Like, what am I doing? Now, that's the kind of waiver guy you wouldn't, I wouldn't let go up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he may have signed it, but he was not in command of his faculties. Yeah. I'd like to hear the re- results of this. It'd be interesting. Cabot for review. Well, and then here we go into St. Thomas, and they have a last-ditch bid for saltwater record. Uh, well, actually, there's, uh, these two articles are the same one, so let's go ahead and uh, follow the, the second article. Uh, diver, yeah, diver uh, Keith uh, Segre uh, wasn't just trying to stay underwater for six days to break the Guinness World Record. He's also raising money for good cause. But after 35 hours, his dry suit failed, and it failed spectacularly. He was diving near St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands, off Cokey Point. His goal was to remain submerged for 30 feet underwater for at least 100 hours, uh, beating the previous world record of 72 hours. The support team had been set to help him with air, food, water, and communications. The attempt was part of a larger effort called Project Nautilus to raise a million dollars for Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, Segre has a personal collection of Make-A-Wish. After his cousin was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, the organization arranged to have him hang out with the Minnesota Vikings. Since hanging out underwater for so long could get boring, Project Nautilus team was going to try and make an iPad work at depth. Turns out they didn't need the extra equipment. 35 hours in the first dive, the electrical wiring in the dry suit malfunctioned. Gray suffered from electrical shocks, burns, contusions. This is according to Virgin Island Daily News. Uh, seawater also got in his suit, causing hypothermia, but he recovered quickly enough to try to dive two more times. Only a drive suit problem persists. Uh, well, how, how does that world record work if you get to pop up for a while? I don't know in this case. I'm, I'm just curious. If people are looking at the video, it's like, why is he so bundled up when the guy by him is half naked? And it's like, it can be warm out there. But if you're going to spend days in the water, yes, you're going to you're going to be in a world of hurt from yeah, that, that hypothermia aspect. Yeah, that water takes heat away from you ten times quicker than air. Right, and I, I can understand his issues. We've been there. We know Bob, for example, has the electric suit, mm-hmm. but you know you're not operating on battery for that length of time. And after doing being shocked and burned and whatever, I'm not quite sure I'd want to continue. Well, it's kind of it seems like there should be a way of turning that off. <laughs> Was he sleeping? I mean, that's a Thirty-five hours. So you're you're beyond a day. You're like a almost you know almost past a day and a half. Yeah. Well, you know the comment that nobody brings up, but I'm really really curious about. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to do this for how many hours? Six days, right? Yeah. All right. His goal was to remain submerged 30 feet under the water for at least 100 hours. Excuse me. You looked at the dive table for that. That's saturation at that point. In deco. Yeah. It's like does that count deco time? And how much deco would he have for six days? At 30 feet. Well, they didn't say, but I've watched, uh, you know, sometimes you have people who are habitats. Yeah. That, which is usually about this depth. They usually go into a decompression chamber or a hyperbaric chamber for 24 to 48 hours after they're done. 
Well, I know that you've got what two hundred and about what two hundred minutes or so mm-hmm. at thirty feet before you're in the deco. Well, two hundred and what five hours? All right, so you got four days. Yeah. So I'm just curious about the deco for this. Well, then after that amount of time, he would be in deco. You just can't pop in surface then. Yeah. Now, so you're you're on gassing. So when you come to the surface, you still have a little bit of risk then. Yeah. So I'm just curious about his, his ascension rate and how he was going to do that. Yeah. I thought we'll tend to the hundred until the hundred hours. Well, that would be that'd be interesting to see because I imagine you could offset some of that by uh, breathing oxygen. You know, maybe coming up to twenty feet and then going on the pure oxygen for a while. Yep, I'm sure you can. You could. I like that. But two hundred and five minutes, then you're in deco. So you know, I take that back. That two hundred five to twenty four. So that's that's what three hours and a half. Yeah. So after three and a half hours, you're already in deco. So thirty five hours. What was his deco time? I'm I'm curious about that. How how did he do it? Mm-hmm. Questions, huh? Yeah, yeah, good good questions. I didn't see anything down below telling me how they did that. Yeah. And then then this next one we have uh, Bigelow Laboratory designated safe scientific diving facility. They say that their certification promotes diving safety and enables. Uh, yeah, I can't I can't even talk today. I I know the word. I know what it's supposed to sound like. Basically, you're to be able to swap uh, diving with other safe diving institutions, being designated as dive safety officer. So what they're referring to in this article is they're talking about if you know, most of us, we've done PADI or SSI or NAWI, which is recreational certification. They're talking about certifications for scientific diving. Uh, so what they in their particular program, they've added concerns like lugging equipment, taking notes, census, uh, moving sea creatures, keeping track of all things that go around them uh, and each other at a uh, specific site to conduct scientific work while underwater requires significant preparation. Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Science just recently completed a very rigorous year-long evaluation to ensure that its scientists who dive are fully prepared to dive safely while conducting underwater research. In addition to laboratory's membership, facility manager Timothy Pinkham was also awarded designation of dive safety officer, which required more than 300 hours of training and additional certification. So what it sounds like is that this is just a review of their process and procedures. Right. If you go to uh, a couple of the universities that have underwater archaeology, for example, part of their course for their scientific diver is they start off from day one, uh, basic scuba diving, advanced open water, all the way through like they just explained here, the, the, the different elements to become a qualified diver and a scientific diver, which is techniques for underwater archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a- and in each, each, excuse me, each university seems to have different criteria for what they would have their divers do. Some are very restrictive. Some are not as restrictive. And part, again, is liability. If I'm diving for the university, I'm liable, meaning the university, if I do certain items that are not good, therefore I'm going to train you and say, these are the standards, follow the standards, and you should remain safe. Yeah, it looks like the the certification was an AAUS certification, which I don't know what that means. Uh, let me American that. Academy of Underwater Sciences. Sciences. So it must be a certification that universities are using to measure if the university falls within it. So basically, they're making the university responsible for their own training program. Well, that's why they say a lot of times that if your process does not is not as strict as mine, my people have to go by my requirements, mm-hmm. or they're not allowed to dive on yours. 
Yeah, because we, we, we had some articles previously where they were talking about uh, colleges and universities having a hard time with their trading personnel back and forth because yeah. they couldn't agree whose was stricter. So you really you couldn't even dive on some of their sites without going through their program. And if you're a student, you know, no matter what level, a master's or above, and then you've got to take you know a week or two weeks course just to be able to dive on a project, and then you're probably paying for that, and then you're paying to be included in whatever research, that's, that can be a challenge, and it's yeah. kind of a waste. Well, it, it's really interesting if you're interested in that kind of stuff, which I always am. Um, the American Academy of Underwater Scientists, if you go to their site, you can download their criteria under PDF or under a, uh, a Word document, and you can look at their standards, their record maintenance, their procedures, emergency procedures. It's a good thing for a club to look at because they can say, what are these guys saying, and what can I use out of their established material to help me out? Exactly. That'd be good. That's, that's something maybe we should take a look at. Well, it's like emergency procedures. We have looked at that, but our type of diving normally doesn't follow their their sequence because we do not do record keeping on every individual for when they leave the surface, what did they do, what was their downtime, you know what I'm saying? Right. This kind of work, you would keep that kind of logbook, the same as if commercial. Right. But it's still interesting to read, and by going through their contents, it's like, oh, I never thought of that, which is really good because that piques your curiosity to find out. Why don't I know about that? And like like some of the guys in the club who do hookah, mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt to look because other diving technologies they talk about are blue water, ice and polar diving, overhead environments, saturation, hookah, surface supply diving. And then they kick into rebreather. So this is very, very interesting. Good information. And probably the nice thing, if you follow this, if, it, if everybody says we're following the same standards, then that could become your baseline. In fact, you could, if you were a university, you could write in that, you know, we will let our divers work in other schools provided that they have as a minimum this level of certification. Now, nice article. Even if you're not going to do it, it's not a bad idea. If you're a diver, read that. It's very informative and, you know, KIT, knowledge is power. Yep, and it says AAUS has uh, promoted safe, effective scientific diving since 1951. So not exactly new either. Yeah. And then here's an article from lifehacker.com, and it says, Five Things I Learned While Scuba Diving. Uh, It's a nice article. I I recommend reading it. It's talking about somebody who uh, is from Australia and who considered himself, let's see, he says, I'm not a huge fan of saltwater. He doesn't like sand up his arse, and uh, he thinks he has the swimming abilities of a five-year-old. Never thought he'd do scuba diving, but uh, he had a got a good deal in open water certification, so he thought he'd give it a try. And so here are the five points through his article that he talked about. And one of them, the first one is he said, you don't need to be an Olympic swimmer. So the requirement is you're able to swim 200 meters and be able to tread water for 10 minutes. He says it sounded intimidating, but for those of us who are terrible swimmers, it's actually not so bad. And I actually had a, uh, somebody who I worked with at work who got who was certified, and he considered himself a non-swimmer. Uh, so that is true. You don't have to be you, – you, to me, being safer on water, you should be able to float. Float I, I water. Swim, but yeah. back when we took it in the day, I mean, they even did drown proofing mm-hmm. where your hands and your feet are sort of tied. Yeah. And if they really want to give you a good time, they give you a brick to hold. I did that in school. We did the hold on to a brick, and I think we had – it wasn't a long time, but it was – I think it was just to give you an idea. They, I think they wanted you to almost panic 
and then realize that you know you were capable of it. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But by the same token, can you imagine someone who can't swim being a diver? Well, seriously, how does that get you out of? I have a problem. My equipment malfunctioned. I'm out there, and if they panic and don't get rid of their weights and inflate their BC, they're dead. In my experience, people who don't consider this themselves swimmers usually have a problem getting their face in the water. And, you, and you've seen these people, they'll be at the pool, they'll be in Lake Michigan, and their hair never gets wet. And it's not <laughs> because they're saving their, their, uh, their, their hairdo. It's because they just have never been able to get over that water splashing in their face. Uh, the other people who I know who are afraid of it are they're like a form of claustrophobia. They don't like the idea of the mask being on their face or in the water. They, th- they see the water as being confining, and it's hard to convince them otherwise. But his first point was you don't need to be a strong swimmer. He, he said, if I can pass, anybody can pass. Uh, his second point, that it, what he learned, he says, it's harder than it looks, but it does become easier. And th- I have to agree with this. I thought as a str- strong swimmer, I wasn't going to have a problem with scuba diving, and it, it took a, takes a little bit of practice. Uh, you know, buoy, buoyancy for some of us didn't come instantly, uh, and, and there is a few things you have to do a little bit of task loading. Uh, next point they had is it may not be as scenic as the images you see in the marketing materials, which certainly is true, because <laughs> those photos are the best possible shot ever. And they probably weren't even that good, even if you were there when they took the photos. It's just the way they're cropped, colorized, everything. It's to make you want to go underwater. So don't think you're going to see 100 fish all perfect ballet coming up and eating out of your hand. Uh, maybe a shark or two. Uh, but uh, it's not always that, that pretty. His next point is it's, it can be scary as hell. It says visibility may be depending on the conditions at your dive site. On my first day of uh, my diving course, there's a lot of debris in the water. I could barely see a meter ahead of me. Also, when you're underwater, you can't really hear much besides the overpowering sound of your own breathing as bubbles escape your regulator. It was creepy. And he says something else, which is <laughs> 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 You think I was just going to go and roll right into that? Yeah. yeah. So, and that's that's going to depend on who you are. Uh, some if some people don't like the visibility, and then he was in warm water, I'm presuming, but I think cold water actually can make it a little bit scarier. Absolutely. And then his last point is he says it can be very peaceful, uh, which I have to agree. I mean, I think that's one of the best things. It's therapeutic. Yeah, you get your Zen moment when you're down there. Yep. Well, good points. I, I, I thought for sometimes you get these articles by somebody brand new and it makes you wonder. But uh, this one was, was pretty well done. Now, I, I just always think of when somebody says they don't swim that well, I keep thinking current, rip. Yeah. Well, and it depends on where you're going to be diving and, you know, dive in your conditions. And that should be part of the class of knowing how to do it. Plus, being in the water helps you swim. I mean, you may not start out a strong swimmer, but you can definitely get better. Well, and and a face mask, snorkel, and fins help you even if you're a non-swimmer. Or let me rephrase that. If you're not that powerful swimmer, those three little items help you out a lot. Well, and then uh, a three three mil or a five mil wetsuit. That gives yeah. you some natural buoyancy. So as long as you properly know how to ditch your weights, you now know you're not going to sink. And it's still interesting. Well, how many people collectively panic, do not drop their weights? I mean, they still survive, but even though you're taught to do it, have you ever seen anybody or talked about it when you actually dumped your weights? The only time I hear anybody dumping their weights is accidentally when they're getting on the dive boat. It, it, yeah, or you're barely... at the bottom and your belly band rubs <laughs> against it, you're freaking weight and you don't realize it because you're 
heavy on the bottom, and then you come up, and it's like, where the hell did my 10 pounds go? Yeah. Yeah. If only losing weight were that easy. Yes. Yeah, you can lose, that's one way you can lose weight. But now that you mention it, I'm trying to think of, I wonder if Dan has anything on the number of incidents where people actually did ditch weights when they, when they needed to. It's phenomenal how many times you'll find the person's drowned with tank with the air still in the tank. Yes, that's another one. That's panicking. Uh, that's spitting out the regulator and drowning that way, usually when that happens. And, and generally, if you overbreathe the regulator and you feel like you're not getting enough air, yeah. that's, I believe it's where a lot of that happens. But again, unless you're on the surface, don't take the freaking regulator out of your mouth because breathing water is a little more dense than air. Yes. And uh, after that first one or two breaths of water, you're not going to be able to do too well on the surface. Well, and, that, and that's something where being in shape, they didn't, even, they didn't talk about this, but I'm presuming this is a, a young person in pretty good condition. But if you're not in good condition, you can easily feel like you're over-breathing a regulator. If you're fighting <laughs> current or you hauled all your gear down. Or and you, or run, you get deep. Pardon me? If you get deep and then you do that activity, you can. Yeah. And then uh, in the older days, some regulators would not keep up. A lot of the newer ones, you they're designed so you cannot outbreathe them. Yeah, the, uh, but if you're if you're even feel like you're outbreathing a regulator, I mean a lot of uh, outbreathing a regulator is mental. You just you're 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 behind and you're just you know because when you're on the surface and you're breathing heavy, you open your mouth and all that air comes in. You you know you're now even though the air is coming in under pressure, uh, you're still you're not physically breathing like you would when you're say you had just run a race or something. Yeah, we had some. Um, like last week, let's go, uh, some personal experience. So current was ripping last week. Mm-hmm. And when you're two-thirds across that and you go, damn it, I don't think I really should have come across mm-hmm. because you've got your chest is feeling compressed because your BC is tight. You're breathing like a big dog. And you're saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't have come across here. Yes. But you surface so you can breathe deeper. Mm-hmm. Now, we had episodes of that last week because poor Jesmark. Yes. I won't mention any names because there was more than one individual experience in this. And yeah. part of it was just like you said, haven't done this for a while. That's because you did it two months ago. What have you been doing in the last two months that maybe, you know, you needed to start out a little slower again? Mm-hmm. Uh, pick a different spot of the river uh, to cross. Yeah. Stay on one side. Don't yep. go across yep. because you got to come back. you got to come back. Uh, also, the, the current maybe is a half knot quicker this week than it was last time you went in the water. Yeah, and then when you get over, you check your air, and you say, son of a gun, I do not. <laughs> yeah, I got to come back now. And yeah, and then you can't go upstream because there's trees in the water, mm-hmm. and you can't go through them, and you can't go around them because then you're out in the middle of the, the quickest part of the stream. It was, it was an interesting week. Yeah. But again, the experience of making a bad decision, you were still able to make a better decision, and it came out okay. But someone who is not as experienced, could have got themselves in some serious trouble. You, you, you mentioned that, and it reminds me of when we did Cooper River. I remember that one dive we did where that was just ripping. All I could do was hang on to my stick to keep me from being drugged downstream the whole freaking hour, yes. Yeah, and and that one, I, I remember after about 15 minutes on it, because that wasn't our first dive in the Cooper, <laughs> and we're th- I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know if I'm in within a half mile. <laughs> You know, I could come up and I could, yeah, I almost expected to, to look and, and be in the harbor. Yeah, we're, we're 40 feet down, three foot if you're lucky on that particular dive. Uh-huh. I'm not even sure we had three feet. And all I can think of is, and he said, when you get up and you get to shore, if you're out of air, 
put your fins on your hands so you can beat away the alligators. It's like, excuse me? Well, that was also that, the, that was also the part of the river where they had the electrical wire, where they had yes. the storm a couple of years before and the yes. high power lines had fallen in the water. And then uh, did you hear Rich actually did get in? There was like a wooden piling or something, and he was he had gotten swept into that. Yeah, that is not a place for somebody who has not dove no. river before, Black River before, and deeper than it, it's it's a that was a trifecta of uh, tough yeah diving yeah. conditions, but it was a blast. Oh heck yes! <laughs> that wasn't as I mean we were still in control. We could have and we could have boarded at any time yes. safely. And I mean, we were, we weren't tumbling backwards or something like that. No. Well, the, the thing is, is when you did, you finally decided it was time to come up. You felt the most in control once you weren't trying to hold on to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And you could still come up at a nice rate because you could watch your yeah. just Even though you couldn't tell the bottom and the top, you could you could come up at a slow enough rate till you got to the surface and then realize, damn, where is everybody? <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I, I'm not quite sure I enjoyed about that is you didn't know where everybody was at because nobody, you, you know, you didn't have a flag. No. And we're used to, where is everybody? I can see a flag somewhere. That would have been not good there. No, that was, a, that's a, and that's just, yeah, each, each area kind of has its own conditions and processes for diving. And there, no. nobody dove the boat was your flag. And, it was, and we didn't have sausage, which I would, I would probably not be diving down. Yeah, and I don't think it either. I mean, I had one, but I think we decided not to have it. We didn't use us. No, but I, I, I need to talk to Rich. It's about time to go and do that one again. We need to go down with Richard and go with him. Oh yeah, yeah. Rich, uh, for those I don't, we've talked about Richard before, but he was used to be the dive shop up here at Wolf's, and he got poached by uh, the Zodiac Boat Company. So he's now down there and. South Carolina. And a traveling man. He's going a lot of places. Teaching. Yeah. Instructing on repair of the boats. That's good. I mean, he's such a nice guy. I'm glad that he had the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, and then the other one, SAS does a shark tooth expedition too, except there is a difference because they're quite a few miles offshore and they're about 100 to 120 foot of water. Yeah. Yeah. They do the, the anchor line pie type dive where you go down and you, you've got between two o'clock and three o'clock if you think of a clock face, and that's your wedge, and then you any teeth in that area you go and get. But that's a little deeper, too, aren't they? Like I guess up 100 to 120 feet, so you're yeah. limited in your time. That's why I like the river. You weren't as deep. We had surface intervals, so you could get three dives in. You couldn't do that at that other one. But we, we definitely got some diving. We, we, we opted for the gung-ho heavy dive. Yeah. Well, how's this for some potentially cool scuba gear? Uh, somebody is marketing the wireless iBubble underwater drone, and they said that this is a drone camera that follows you underwater anonymously, autonomously and in high definition. Uh, the iBubble is the brainchild of diver Kevin Delfour. Delfour? Yeah, Delfour. We'll call him Delfour. And Xavier Spangler, as they looked for a way to create quality submarine videos with minimal equipment, the idea of autonomous camera, that was able to follow and film divers underwater became evident. The pair turned to startup maker to create the product. Startup maker is a French startup studio behind uh, Hexo Plus, uh, the follow drone that way raised 1.3 million last year in Kickstarter. iBubble is currently being developed in France. Well, you have that same case surface. Yeah, on, on the surface where they uh, they have one where you it takes off from your hand and will just keep 
following you around. Right. So it's like, to me, it's like this one, but, you know, you've got a little more difficulties because of the wireless aspect. How do you do that on the water? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious how they did do that. It says uh, early on in the development of the product, uh, they're looking at uh, videotaping a free diving champion, 126-meter vertical depth, and he's currently the company's ambassador. Free from heavy video equipment, you simply enjoy the dive. The waterless dive bubble follows divers and swimmers of deep thanks to intelligence onboard software. While silently capturing your submarine journey, it understands your way of diving, gliding with you, analyzing your moves, sharing with the friends, and what to see. But they, they don't say anything about how what it's how's it doing it. Well, it said iBubble shadows you via a connected bracelet. Ah. Smart and wireless, you can let it follow you while you focus on your diving. So connected bracelets and then wireless, I'm not sure what that meant. Well, the connected bracelet, smart. and So what it, it sounds like is it's, up, it's some sort of beacon. Yeah. The air drones are doing it's the same idea. I like the idea of it because that's, I've wanted as subjects to videotape uh, divers. And the thing about like this podcast is there's not a production team. It's just us. So to do video... Part of this, you know, you, you know, every diver in the water, you can't have three more running cameras. So something like this would be interesting. Uh, the only problem, the other problem I would have is that I need something that can handle the river, and I bet you the river just about destroy these. I, that's what my, my concern was, is what kind of propulsion system do you have? And then a place that you have current, mm-hmm. that's kind of the answer. It's like entering a surf line or something like that, mm-hmm. or the river. I'd be curious to see how that's going to work. Yeah, they said it will follow you for one hour, on one battery, simply swap batteries for a longer outing. Once the battery's empty, the, the drone automatically resurface LED lights make it easy to locate. Well, let's see what that looks like a year from now. Yep, because they said that pre-sales will start in February. Working prototypes will be shipped to testers in September of 2016. General sales is believed to be in January 2017. The tough thing is just by what they're describing, you already know it's going to be in a $1,000 range. Yeah, it'd be hard not to. Today you're diving with me and iBubble, the first autonomous underwater camera. Did you see the video? No, I haven't had an opportunity to I just, the video. I just scrolled it down as a cartoon one, telling you how it's going to work. So I'll look at that later. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, I like the idea because it would be, I've got two or three projects that, uh, especially if you if this worked real, out well, it would be nice. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. And with this unseasonably warm weather, I expect that you got some diving in. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you wouldn't have solved either way. Yeah. Well, you know, we got our normal dive in last week, and then uh, uh, Jim and I got a, a working dive in on Monday at the, uh, you know, the restoration they're doing on the piers. Yes. Uh, we had an opportunity to work for them again because they lost some gear in that last storm. Oh, okay. It's amazing that how you can lose a 23-foot-long section of iron railing that's heavy, and it's not anywhere where they thought it went. But if you look at the storm we had for, you know, four days and what the sea state was, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, you, we have no clue. We did not find that, the item they were looking for. You would wow. think I could find a 23-foot piece of iron that should have been one foot off the dock or off the pier. Right, because no matter how strong that water is, you want to think that it's going to be within 10, 15 feet. Right. But that's telling you that it's a little bit more than that. Now, is it a straight piece or is it formed already? I, it was already formed. It was a straight piece, but you know the walkway on top of the gantry? Yes. It was one of those sections. They made a new section. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, I know what, ain't where they think it was. <laughs> uh, and I spent a hell of a lot of time. 
But I am finding uh, pilings that you can put your arm around 15 feet long embedded in the riprap in that section that we were looking. Now, you say pilings embedded. You mean storms have drove the pilings into it? Absolutely. It's like, how the heck did it do that? But then again, you've got surge and you've got, you know, 15, 16 foot waves. Well, and you've got a lot of force. That yeah. water. When you uh, look at what a, hur- a hurricane can do, water's got a lot more. And I had good six-foot visibility, and I covered their area, and then I did a, a line sweep from the surface out into the sand and then did that part to validate. It ain't there. So Jim got the privilege, ha-ha, <laughs> of diving the riverside because I already used my time up on that side. So he went down. He did recover uh, four angle iron beams. And each of those are probably 80 to 100 pounds. Uh, they're all in a group probably 10 foot away from the dock or from the pier. Mm-hmm. And how the hell it got that far out is amazing to me. Well, and then the other thing is it seemed like last time you were doing a recovery in the same area, the objects were on the opposite side of the pier that they thought they were. Right, and that's why we dove the riverside afterwards is to, all right, it ain't where you think it is. Let's go back to where it shouldn't be. So we find old iron there. We found you know, extension cords, the really nice ones. Jack stands for their scaffolding. Uh, on my side, I'd been some stainless steel tubing I brought up that was 18 foot long or something. It's We found a lot of stuff, but not that one section of iron. And the visibility on the riverside was, until they had to do a re- couple of repasses, was at least three feet, which is still excellent. Yeah, I'm supri- surprisingly nice. Yeah, normally it's zero. So that was a fun day. Sounds and, like you know, we got pictures of the truck out there on the pier. It's like, hey, this looks pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's kind of nice when you can drive out there. Uh, yeah, a necessity. Yeah, I remember that time you and I were out there in the golf cart. Yes. Yeah, and the golf cart almost went in, too. <laughs> yeah. You didn't drive the car, the truck in the water, I take it. No, they did the uh, the system out there a little different. This time, instead of using steel plate, they made the ramps and filled it in with concrete. Oh. And they extended the... Uh, the drive area around the first lighthouse by welding plates out and then putting concrete. Okay. And they left it open in the middle so you wouldn't have surge and pressure against the bottom plates, which is very smart. Okay. So somebody did learn. Now, are they going to leave that there? Is that going to be dismantled when they get the... I would imagine they're going to take the extension out, but I hope they leave the the concrete down because that makes a great ramp. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I got my dolly car. I can just come straight on down. Yeah. With my scuba tanks, I don't have to go out, you know, drop down two feet. I can just roll it down the, the ramp itself. Well, if they start doing that as a an excursion, having people go out there as part of that museum, they may want to leave it there just for access. You know, if you have somebody has a heart attack out there, yes, they can get uh, emergency equipment to the lighthouse quicker. Yes, you can. And if they move that the uh, the blue rail, which is gone right now, you can drive down there mm-hmm. to facilitate emergent action by. Yeah, because you, you could make something where you could have a lock or on it and open it and close it as needed. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I noticed in the photos that they've they've done a level of painting that I don't think I've seen on the, the pier before. Yeah, they've actually got a gentleman from uh, the paint company, or a contractor, uh, taking pictures of them as they do the paint job over the whole time, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. That's like QC in your work yeah. as it's being done. Well, it looks like they, they they are sandblasting and taking it to base metal, aren't they? Yep. yep. And the way they did the sheltering so you're not contaminating anything with the, with the sand is very, very smart. They've got the big A-frame, not A-frame, but U-frames on dollies. Mm-hmm. So you move the covering and contain all the sand 
and recycle it. Yes. So you're not polluting anything. That's that's very smart. Yeah, because I'm I'm sure there's some of those older layers of paint might have some questionable materials in them. Never thought of that, but that's probably true. Yeah. Well, nice. Uh, and then did you get to do the Thirsty Thursday dive? Yeah. Since it's been getting dark so early, uh, we decided to do an early one. Now, today was the reopening of the bridge in Niles. It's been over, what, a little over a year and something since I uh, took the old bridge out and have the brand new one put in. Uh, it's really it's really pretty. They got an outwalk, so when you're halfway over, there's a section that goes out over the water, so you can actually go out there, you can fish, take pictures. Dive entry? Uh, no, not unless <laughs> you want to jump off about so many feet. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a giant stride. Yeah, and they've got uh, two sections of piling, not piling, but support, as opposed to three. So the current in the middle is not as obstructed as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there should be less debris build up during the flood areas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, they, so they that would be interesting to see how that affects everything downstream of it now. Well, I remember they had some years where the ice, that was a nice dam. Yes. So that should help minimize some of that. It'll be interesting to see what that does to our bottoms downstream of us. Yeah, that will uh, create a whole new channel. It will be interesting. So that was fun, and not to mention the head cake and stuff. Uh, and I left it for pedestrians for the first two hours from 2 to 4, and then had the big ceremony and fire trucks and ambulances and all this to go across the bridge when it finally opened. And uh, all the construction gear gone from the site, or they still have some there? No, it, it appears to be gone. I did not see anything like you know trucks or anything that was not as part of the opening ceremonies. Wow. But the air temperature, again, 52 when we were there. Water temperature still 40. Uh, visibility was anywhere from zero to three feet. Oh, zero? Oh. Yep. And then uh, the current was very manageable if you're near or along the banks. And uh, But if you got out a little ways, it's ripping. Wow. Uh, and again, Jake brought his little warming trailer, which was really nice whenever you want to get out of the wet. The, the temperature was not bad, but when you're wet coming out of 40-degree water, oh, yeah. the wind was whipping today. Well, and if you stayed yeah. in a little longer than you should have, it can make it even more of a situation. Well, at least today I also found where the hole is in my dry suit. <laughs> Uh-oh. You, so you you've, have a hole. I do, and I found it today, finally. So I know where the one of them is. It was a semi-wet dive, but I was still nicer than I would have been on a wetsuit. Yes. And no pictures of goodies. I haven't seen any pictures of goodies, so nobody no, found we, anything? We did not take. Well, Sarah got out there, and she's in zero vis, and so she's just, you know, and she stayed near the shoreline, which is smart because she doesn't have that experience yet. She's out there just plumbing her hands into the darkness and coming up with freaking milk bottles. <laughs> oh, jeez. I know it. And that's off the dock. You know, like uh, nobody does that. All no. my best finds have been by feel. Have you seen the last couple of finds she's had? Was was that, did she have one of the, like the Crocs? The glass train? Yes, I saw that. The train engine? The glass telephone? I didn't see the telephone. Oh, nice stuff. I am so jealous. And all of that's been in shallows near the shoreline on this side. Hmm. It was amazing. So it, it was it was a lot of fun tonight. Nice. And then we went over to the Nugget and uh, did our dive debrief of all the stupid things we did <laughs> and not to do again. I mean, they're minor items, but by being with all the gear we normally carry and have available, there's nothing we couldn't modify. I mean, like one of the regulators developed a freaking lake, so we had to modify that and then put an extra hose on it. Okay. Because we had spare parts, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. Nothing we couldn't overcome, but, again, it's nice to have extra equipment and compensate. True, very true. Fun. Excellent. 
Um, and then what kind of dive plans are there for this weekend? Uh, well, I know Bob had get, wanted to get out on the on the, a couple of the inland lakes, but he's in Florida. Oh, okay. Uh, you know that, right? No, I hadn't heard. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Maggie's father passed away last oh, week, a couple of days ago, and they, they were, he was down there with her at that time. Mm-hmm. So they're still working things out. So, okay. Um, and his plans obviously have been dictated by other priorities. Oh, yeah. yeah well. But I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's going to be diving Saturday or Sunday someplace. I know Kevin, he had, he's becoming a diving fool. He's, he, he's, he's diving, he's boating. Uh, I mean, he's, he'll dive two spots 70 miles apart from each other in a day. Yes, he will. Uh, he was doing some deep dive training last week. He was up uh, at the quarry, so he's working for about 130 foot right now. And since he's younger than us, he will be getting a rebreather. There is no doubt. You know, oh, yeah. He's a techie diver. Well, that's good. Yes. Yeah, maybe someday. That's that's one of those lottery items, I think, at this point. Well, trying to make the 17th. That's a nice dive. That's next Thursday. We'll probably take the week after that off, and then we'll be having the New Year's dive on the 31st. Yes. Which happens to be a Thursday. This is kind of an odd calendar year. I think I like it, though. <laughs> if, if I, right now, it really doesn't look like we're going to have any ice for New Year's, which suits no, me fine. No, I don't think we are. Uh, the I was been watching the weather, and the, it's like El Nino versus the polar vortex. Yeah. And the polar vortex, they showed a map of it, and it's a tight circle almost exactly above the North Pole right now. And they said normally by now it started to stretch and take little dips down. Uh, but they said that this El Nino is just kicking its butt. It's almost like a boxing match. So I don't know. We might not get the snow I was predicting. I, I just have a fear that with all the heat that's been built up in the Great Lakes at once that you get some of the the wind coming, uh, the cold weather coming from Canada. We're just going to get lake effect for a month. I I, I concur with you there. I think we're going to get smashed. But uh, I think for now it looks like no ice diving for New Year's, which suits me fine. No, I yeah, but I I still am kind of going with my prediction that once it starts to snow, we're going to get it. Yeah, so get in everything we can right now. In fact, it was looking like Sunday might be the beginning of snow. Unless they've changed that report. Oh, there is an opportunity to uh, have a warm dive on the 19th. That's uh, sat- not this Saturday, Saturday after. Uh, one of the local dive clubs is having a pool event at Bridge. Oh, oh, really? We're invited as long as you RSVP. Okay. Well, is there a fee to go? It did not appear to be. I believe that was the Heart City. I'd have to double check, but I think Heart City was. Wow, that's quite a, a lot for Heart, Heart City, but. Yeah, it might be a good opportunity. I'm trying to think of what I need to do in the pool, though, other than just be having some fun. Well, if you haven't had your dry suit on for a while, you can go and check it out. <laughs> I need to lose some weight so I can make sure I can still get my dry suit. Well, you got about, what, eight days? <laughs> eight days, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I'll be going to my doctor where he'll be yelling at me. So, uh, Okay, well, that's, that's good. Uh, if you want to follow this and some more, we, you can follow us on Twitter at Scoob Obsessed. I've, I've been a little lax. I need to catch back up on it, but I try to put a few scuba stories in the news feed so you get your scuba fix between shows. Also, Facebook on facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. You can follow us. We can get quite a few new members there. Uh, Mud Club, mudclub.com. No, not mudclub.com. Mudclub.scubaobsessed.com is the Mud Club site. Now, have, have you been able to get in? Uh, I honestly have not tried it. Okay. Uh, I need to update because I am two months behind again now. Yeah, I'm the same way on the Scoob Obsessed site. So 
need to be doing some posts. But if you have any problems, let me know. Um, and I, I probably a few tweaks to do to the site. I also updated the uh, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserves site, dive SW Southwest SWMUP, I think, dot com mm-hmm. uh, preserve site. So that's been, you won't be able to visibly see anything, but the, the application code's all been updated. That happened today. Uh, and then we'd like to thank again WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Radio Network, which is Reno RenoViolaOutdoors.com or WRVORadio.com. If you'd like to listen to us or other programs about the great outdoors, you can follow the network 24 by 7 by 365. Also, they have an app, too. Let's see. seems like I'm missing something again. I think that's just my nature sometimes. I always feel like you're missing out on something. Uh, oh, pin in the map. We haven't, we haven't done a pitch for the pin in the fan map in a while. So if you go to scubaobsessed.com, put your pin in the fan map. I think you go to, if you go all the way to the bottom, you know, let's, let's go visit the website. Sometimes that's not always a good idea. I might get too distracted. But if you go to, I think it's, uh, so the, the, there's two menus. There's a middle menu and a top menu. You go to the top menu, the show, go down about four to Scuba Obsessed Guest. No, that's the wrong, that's not the right one. I'm just, I'm going to have send everybody all to the wrong spot. <laughs> see where is it it's about fans what the heck okay yeah go down to the footer here you go now this is this is really the way go down to the footer about us and then scuba obsessed fans you click on that and they'll bring bring up a map and what you do is you log in there uh pin on the fan map and you can see where all the divers and these are people who listen to the show put their pins in the map, and maybe you might discover somebody who's in your area. You put as much or as little information about yourself as you'd like in there. Okay, well, I think it's that time of the show. All right. So we are getting close to the red and green time of the year. So this first one is three divers who died on Christmas Eve and were met by St. Peter at the Pearly Gate. In honor of this holy season, St. Peter said, you must each possess something that symbolizes Christmas to get into heaven. So the first diver, Darren, fumbled through his pockets and pulled out a lighter. He flicked it on. He says, it's a candle, he said. You may pass through the pearly gates, St. Peter said. Then Mac reached into his pocket, pulled out a set of keys. He shook it and said, they're bells. St. Peter said, you may pass through the pearly gates. Then Ralph started searching desperately through his pockets, finally pulled out a pair of women's panties. St. Peter looked at him and raised his eyebrows and asked, and just what do these symbolize? Then Ralph said, these are Carol." Carolyn, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas carols? Is that the idea? I would think so. I just came out of teeth. <laughs> so on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. 